Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Indiana ranks second in the nation for the number of 2 to 17-year-olds who take medication for ADHD, according to the Centers for Disease Control Statistics. Uh, Indiana, the state, falls just below Louisiana with 9% of children diagnosed with the disorder and taking medication, while 2% have been, 2.7% have been diagnosed but are not taking medication. Uh, the CDC has indicated the rates reflect a rise in ADHD diagnosis throughout the country, and we're going to talk about that rise in diagnosis and what medical treatments could mean for children as they grow into adulthood today on our program. We have uh, a lot of help with us today. We have mm-hmm. three, three guests, two are in the studio, and one is on the phone, and then we have two other people who are going to be available to take questions uh, through our live chat and on Twitter. So our guests in the studio are Dr. Richard Malone, a pediatrician with Southern Indiana Pediatrics, and Kathleen Hugo, who is the Director of Special Education for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. And joining us by phone is Dr. Thomas Locke, a developmental behavioral pediatrician at Riley Hospital for Children at IU Health. And let me introduce uh, also Naomi Pickholtz, a clinical psychologist from Southern Indiana Pediatrics, and Esther Briggs, a pediatric nurse practitioner from Southern Indiana Pediatrics, who are the two experts available to answer your questions on the live chat and on Twitter. So if you want to go to that live chat, go to wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. You can also join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And if you want to join the program on the air, give us a call at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Now, got all that out of the way. Welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here. All right. Well, we wanted to start with a a sort of a general, your general um, review of these statistics and and give us uh, your reaction to them. I think I'll start with Dr. Malone here in the the studio. Certainly with ADHD, the uh, expected uh, rate of occurrence uh, might range uh, in the three to five percent range in school-age children, uh, with a uh, uh, preponderance more towards uh, boys than in girls. So the uh, the figures uh, in this study are uh, a little higher than one might expect for mm-hmm. the uh, normal. Uh, expected prevalence of the disease. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you diagnose this? How, what would a diagnosis entail? Uh, generally, uh, there is an observed uh, difference in a uh, child's behavior versus uh, other children's behavior. Uh, this uh, may come to our attention through uh, uh, seeing the patient in the office may come to our attention through a a parent's concern about a child's behavior. Uh, It may come to our attention through uh, relatives or through the school systems or through uh, daycare's observation of the child as being uh, different from other children. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Locke, your reaction to the statistics? That I was surprised that um, it was that high, although there have been some recent um, studies where um, investigators um, had behavioral questionnaires done for all the children in the school and then followed up with interviews with the, um, many of the parents and examinations of the children, and they found rates um, around 8 to 10 percent, so that it's not um, a total surprise that um, it would be a surprise that um, if the match were perfect of the diagnosis and the kids getting um, who who really had it, but it is um, it's not um, out of the realm of reasonable. Kathleen, I want you to react to this too. But before before I give you a chance to do that, I'd like the doctors to um, tell us what 
what they typically see. This isn't the kind of thing you do a blood test to diagnose. So how is this uh, diagnosed? Dr. Malone? Uh, typically, uh, the uh, parents will, uh, in, in our practice, uh, parents may call in with a concern or discuss a concern at the time of a uh, well checkup. And uh, part of the diagnosis uh, is questionnaire-based. Uh, the uh, school systems use mm -hmm. a questionnaire called the uh, Connors mm -hmm. questionnaire, and we use a, a questionnaire called the uh, Vanderbilt questionnaire. And uh, prior to seeing the child, we uh, have the parents fill out the questionnaire and have the uh, uh, one or several teachers fill out the questionnaire. Uh, we then score the questionnaire and uh, then bring the child and the parents into the office for a face-to-face -face evaluation. Mm -hmm. Generally, uh, most of these children are patients who we've been seeing for years, and so it's not the first time that we've seen the uh, child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do right. Dr. Locke, uh, are, are children already diagnosed by the time they get to you, or do you do the primary diagnosis as well? Um, both ways. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that some of them have had the evaluation um, b beforehand for their primary care. Other, pe other primary care people don't feel comfortable and they refer to a specialist. Uh, that the, the questionnaires, what they do is they go over um, pretty much the, the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and they have people rate um, whether or not the um, the child has this behavior, not at all, sometimes often or very often, and uh, responses of often and very often are um, considered um, signs of, um, of clinical difficulty. And then they're also asked about um, how does the behavior affect the child's performance um, with the family and in school, and those things are... Um, put together to consider the diagnosis. Okay, thanks. All right, Kathleen? Well, I think from the school's perspective, when we, <clears throat> we would take information, again, from a variety of sources, we often get information from physicians. Uh, parents will bring in information from physicians, or uh, teachers will notice behaviors that are of concern. And so when we do an evaluation, an educational evaluation, we, we would, as Dr. Malone said, we would use the Connors, which is a rating scale, and it's filled out by uh, several people, the parent, a couple of teachers, probably a variety of people to get different situations. And then we would do observations also that would look for um, behaviors that were of concern, impulsivity, um, aggression, inability to get along with other students, things like that, that would all, we would put that all together to see whether, um, as Dr. Malone said, whether it fit the criteria of attention deficit and, for our purposes, whether it's interfering with performance in the school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do these statistics look to you? Do you think that's high or about what you would? Well, I, it's interesting. I think sometimes it seems like it's um, incredibly low because it seems like there's a lot of kids who have many of these behaviors. Um, but I think also there are, there are many of kids who have, who have some of these behaviors some of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I think the fact that Nevada has a very low rate of attention deficit the lowest in the nation compared to us. I don't know that what would be so different about us from Nevada. You know, there's some belief that sometimes it's it's the social situation, um, how we're dealing with it rather than something about the child. Because, of course, every child may have some of these behaviors sometimes. So when it goes over into the, the realm of, you know, clinically significant is the question. But in the schools, we don't track the number of students with ADHD per se. That isn't a, a category that we, one of the few categories that we don't take numbers on. But um, our numbers of students in special education who have what would be called a health impairment, which is typically students with ADHD, although it can be other students, that's certainly not that high. I think last year we had about 240 students who were in that category, um, which is only about 2% of our students. Um, and all of those students may not have attention deficit. 
students may also have attention deficit with an educational diagnosis of an emotional disability or a learning disability too. So it could all be woven in there. Mm-hmm. And then we off- we also have students who may not be um, considered needing special education at all. So across the board, I don't know if I could say those numbers are accurate or not. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I have uh, you know a very basic question from a. a you know, I've reached that age now where I look back to, you know, my childhood when everything, of course, was different. And and I guess my question involves, uh, you know, when ADHD became a common diagnosis because, you know, I have, I have a, a good friend who um, lives elsewhere in the state who said to me many times, you know, I should have been diagnosed with that when I was a kid. But, of course, the diagnosis wasn't around. Right. He, you know, he was an aggressive kid. He couldn't pay attention. He was always moving, couldn't pay attention, got into lots of trouble. He's done quite well for himself, but mm-hmm. you know, he recognizes now that that was probably mm-hmm. his issue then. And I think there's a lot of adults who will say that, that mm-hmm. looking back on it, they put it all together and, mm-hmm. and suddenly the, the picture forms and they realize that they did have attention deficit or they still do, but have managed hopefully to find ways to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when was it that we started thinking there might be something more than just you know, a kid who's got a lot of energy? So the original clinical descriptions go back to after the um, encephalitis outbreak in the 1930s. There were talks about then it was called minimal brain damage. Um, the research that um, linked um, hyperactivity to inattention was in the 70s. So um, starting in the 70s, the diagnosis of ADHD um, came into um, into play, um, and then uh, over the last um, ten or fifteen years, there have been the Academy of Pediatrics has um, had um, practice guidelines that have um, helped pediatricians formalize the the process um, for making the diagnosis, and that seems to have um, uh, made the um, consideration of ADHD. Uh, um, and the access to um, treatment um, have increased. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. That's if you're outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And we have experts in there today. So if you have questions you don't want to ask on the air, you can just send them to the live chat. And right. And I'll share the comments answer. both from the experts and uh, your questions or okay. comments, too. All right. Um, you know, we, we have this chart uh, that Gretchen was kind enough to bring into us, and, and the numbers that we're looking at from uh, the CDC essentially have there, – there are a couple of different columns. So we have, you know, one column. What, in, what Indiana's second is in is the number of kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD and are taking medication. That's 9 percent. Um, and then there also is a number two point seven percent of kids who are taking medicate or are have a have been diagnosed but are not taking medication. So what Indiana is particularly high in second is the number of kids who have been diagnosed and are on medication. So is there something you can attribute that to? Um, for instance, Kentucky is at eight point nine percent of its kids uh, are taking medication, um, and four point two percent are not taking medication. So, you know, they still have a almost well, not quite twice, but probably thirty or forty percent more kids who have been diagnosed but aren't taking medication. So, is there anything you can? Is our state different from others? Anybody? No, Doctor Malone. I would I would uh, suspect that there's uh, a, a lot of what goes into uh, the. Uh, Prescribing of medication is is adult response to observations of children's behavior, mm-hmm. whether that's on the part of the parent or whether that's on the part of the other caregivers. I think uh, part of the decision to prescribe a medication uh, involves uh, a child meeting a, a, a set of diagnostic criteria and the parent's desire for the child to be on medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're faced with many situations where there's kids who really seem like they fit the criteria and the parents are not very interested in that, in which case 
what we try to recommend is uh, behavioral uh, treatment and certainly uh, what the approach known as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, you know, is, is certainly a non-medication option that is available. Mm-hmm. And is that one, you, you'd have a counselor sit down with the, the kid and go through behaviors that are acceptable and ones that aren't? Is that how? A, uh, a frequent behavior that we see with children who carry uh, the diagnosis of, of ADHD uh, with hyperactivity uh, is impulsivity. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are children who touch other children, who uh, uh, blurt out responses, uh, have trouble uh, maintaining uh, coherent conversations because they, they can't wait to, to listen. Uh, they can't think before they jump or think before they uh, touch. And these these are kids who uh, behavioral techniques can work, uh, you know, such as just counting to 10 before you act. Mm-hmm. And so knowing consequences to actions and uh, connecting those to responses to our actions can help kids gain insight into the results of their behaviors. Mm-hmm. Kathleen? Well, I, I think in, in the research that uh, some of the best results have been seen with a combination of both medication appropriately given and behavioral therapy. And in the schools, we obviously would handle the behavioral part of it. We use a lot of different strategies to work with kids who have all of those characteristics that Dr. Malone described. Um, we, we teach a lot of organizational skills. We teach social skills. One strategy that works very well with children with ADHD is use, teaching them to self-manage their behavior. Something as simple as a chart on their desk where they would check off when they got things done, um, those kinds of things. Teaching them uh, social skills in groups where they would practice turn-taking and interacting with students, with other students. Those kinds of things can be very, very effective. Um, you obviously want to focus on positive reinforcement, so frequent reinforcement for small steps that would lead to bigger steps um, to keep kids going in the right direction. Because this can be, you know, very debilitating for children. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, you have these impulsive behaviors, you can't control them, and then other students start to avoid you or don't want to be around you because you're always making noise, and it, it can have a cavalcade of effects that, unfortunately, can be, you know, very, very detrimental as kids get older. Um, and can make school very difficult for them. So I think that the sooner we can intervene with or without medication and get the students on a track in the right direction, the more we're able to help them be successful ultimately, you know, in school and then in life. Mm-hmm. Dr. Locke, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that the younger you are, the more important mm-hmm. the behavioral interventions are and the more um, uh, responsive to the interventions the children are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, for example, at Academy recommendations for preschoolers um, who are hyperactive is um, is behavior therapy first, mm-hmm. um, and then um, only um, medication as an adjunct. I often think of that um, one of the differences between when talking about behavior therapy is that everybody has a behavior plan. It might not be a very good one, but everybody <laughs> is in a classroom with a teacher who reacts to their behavior and classmates that react to their behavior. And um, for some, uh, some children need more or less support to be successful um, in that environment um, so that the, um, that the behavior supports can be um, hard to access for families um, outside of school um, um, and depends on the school district you're in. The Bloomington area is, you know, more fortunate than a lot of communities to have a strong, actively engaged um, um, system that they, you know, they're, they're proactive with children who are having uh, problems with attention and impulsivity, whereas other um, school districts, things are, um, you know, a lot of the um, the baseline for behavior um, management for kids without ADHD is not very good, and it's a lot 
more difficult in those communities. Yeah. We've also heard from Esther Briggs, the uh, pediatric nurse practitioner from Southern Indiana Pediatrics. She writes, I think some folks can compensate for their impairments, at least maybe until schoolwork gets more complex, but others can't and therefore uh, be quite functionally impaired and can lose opportunities in life if they don't get help from behavioral therapy and or medications uh, for example, their behaviors can interfere with the ability to make and keep friends or do well enough in school to feel and be successful. Yeah, I wanted to uh, – let me give the phone numbers again, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. And also you can join the live chat, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I wanted to, to sort of ask about that age range. The numbers we're talking about are 2 to 17 and uh, Dr. Locke just mentioned, and I think you guys uh, have agreed, that the younger you can start working with, with uh, kids that get this diagnosis, the better. But when, when does it typically present? Is there a, an age group that is more likely to be um, either on medication or starting to get behavioral therapy than, than another in this 2 to 17 bracket? Hmm. Hmm. I, th- I think um – we often see students in school where parents will say they've they've had these difficulties and even in preschool where students have been uh, you know more active than others have difficulty with friendships and things on the playground we do see that but i think but sometimes also it can only become a problem in a school setting if a, if a student is at home and you know running around and playing and there aren't the, there aren't the expectations of the classroom that you sit down for a certain period of time Sometimes it doesn't show up until you have those kinds of demands on them. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, some of the things we do in the schools is try and make accommodations for them as well, give kids breaks if they need to get up and get around um, so that we're both working on the behavior and then accommodating it because we don't want to punish them for for something that they really can't control. Mm -hmm. Dr. Malone, can you sort of help me understand how it would present in a two-year-old? <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't, no, I can't. I can't. <clears throat> um, okay. Typically, uh, you know, in in kids that uh, you know, we may get concerns as early as three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. but those are kids who really we want to kind of work with teaching behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the children who are very hyperactive may be uh, identified in K through three. And uh, the organizational requirements of third, fourth, and fifth grade bring another set of kids who may not have any hyperactive behavior. They may be inattentive. In other words, they're, they're si- quietly sitting at their desk, but their brain is somewhere far away from what is going on in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then that may get further uh, accentuated uh, as kids get into uh, higher grades where there are more uh, complex requirements for uh, organizational skills and, and sustained focus. Mm-hmm. Dr. Locke, sound like you want to make a comment? It, that, well, there are a number of um, parents of preschoolers come uh, with concerns, either kids that have, um, have other delays or that kids that they're ha- children they're having real difficulty with following directions and um, when the, the the preschooler who you know who is um, you know um, not following directions um, I think we've all seen disruptive kids out in the community who are toddlers running around and um, and people are commenting why doesn't that mother control that child um, that w- if you um, take a uh, groups of those children about half of them will improve it on behavior therapy alone and then there's another half who um, continue to have difficulties even with intensive behavior therapies and who um, in the long run turn out to have ADHD. So there certainly are kids that have been um, identified reliably in that preschool age. And then, um, as Dr. Malone says, um, kindergarten and first grade um, is a big adjustment for some children, and they run into difficulty then. And then um, older kids, as life gets more complicated and our demands on our ability to pay attention go up, um, 
more people will become identified. Okay. All right. And we've had another comment uh, from Naomi Pickholtz, who is a clinical psychologist at Southern Indiana Pediatrics. Pardon me, Naomi says, it is also crucial to involve parents in treatment. Providing parents with strategies to help their child function better at home, such as setting up clear expectations. Put away the pile of clothes on your bed is better than asking the child to clean your room, Mm -hmm. which might be too general and invite the child to become distracted while trying to figure out what to clean up first. Also, help parents set up goals for their child that are reachable. This will give the child confidence in their ability to succeed rather than setting goals too high, which can lead the child to feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, that's great advice for any of us, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be more focused. <laughs> really? On, yeah. well, I know. I need that when I'm cleaning up my room. All right. We're, we've reached, oh, go ahead, Dr. Moore. I think an interesting point that, that you know, I would draw from, from that comment is that uh, ADHD is something that uh, – it, it should go – it should permeate the child's life. So we don't just see mm-hmm. it at school. Mm-hmm. We don't just see it uh, at home. But we should see it as, as a consistent part of their, of their uh, daily uh, behavior. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're having a conversation about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder here on Noon Edition today. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we're talking about um, Indiana's rank as second in the nation for the number of of young people who take medication for ADHD, according to the Centers for Disease Control. We're uh, talking about that and other other issues involving attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with uh, some great guests today. We have three with us who you can talk with. We have Dr. Thomas Locke, developmental behavioral pediatrician at Riley Hospital for Children at IU Health in Indianapolis. He's on the phone. We also have in the studio Dr. Richard Malone, a pediatrician with Southern Indiana Pediatrics, and Kathleen Hugo, the director of special education for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. And if you want to just ask a question online, or we're getting some comments from them too, Naomi Pickholtz, a clinical psychologist from Southern Indiana Pediatrics, and Esther Briggs, a pediatrician pediatric nurse practitioner from Southern Indiana Pediatrics are also with us today. So give us a call at 855-0811 in Bloomington or um, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. I'd like to address this question to the doctors. Um, Depending on the numbers you believe, this seems to be trending up still uh, to some extent. Are we getting our researchers getting any closer to figuring out what causes this, and are they is there progress being made in treatments, uh, especially drug therapies? I'm thinking specifically drug therapies on this. Dr. Malone, you want to start with this one? Oh, I, I uh, I'm going to defer to Dr. Locke on, on <laughs> new treatments uh, on that, but I think there's certainly more of a, a growing uh, awareness amongst the the population. I mean, everybody, uh, uh, it's, it's common to hear many people say, I had an ADHD moment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think 
as people are more aware of this as a condition and understand what it means, they tend to see it more in themselves and in their children. And as with with many complaints that we see in a general pediatric office, uh, people will come in and they'll see a little bit of a quote-unquote disease uh, in themselves or in their family member, and they come to see whether they are okay. And and certainly uh, it is it is fine for a physician to tell a patient that their kid is okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Locke, any closer to figuring out uh, what might cause this and any new treatments that uh, we might like to hear about? Um, the treatments have the, the the main the most effective treatments have been around for uh, that we know of have been around for quite some time now there have been um non-stimulant medications have been shown to be effective um although they um in the studies they tend to be about two-thirds as effective as the stimulants so that they may not be the best um first choice um uh, they're um uh, the um, behavior um, therapies, there's ongoing work with those. Uh, the other part of the question was about are we better, are we closer to knowing causes? We know that, it, that ADHD tends to run in families, although um, also people that have um, brain and neurologic problems for other reasons are also at increased for, uh, risk for having ADHD-type symptoms. Uh, that it's a general thing for a lot of um, neurological um, disorders than things that we would think um, might be less um, sensitive to sort of things like public awareness that they're more mm-hmm. more frequent um, that if you look at the um, prevalence of people with um, brain injury or people with Alzheimer's or people with MS, they're all, uh, people with autism. All these things have um, been increasing, um, at least in identification, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. There's been a lot of talk um, in, in various media outlets about um, ADHD having a, a, an environmental uh, connection. Does that anything you put any credence in? Um, there's not there have not been good studies that um, support that. Uh, unfortunately, there there was a large um, study, a federal study, the the National Children's Study that was um, attempting to look at things like that. It was making, um, you know, following a sample of children children from all over the country. However, um, it, that seems to have um, Fall and afoul of the uh, uh, the the sequester and that sort of thing in Washington, so that doesn't look like we're going to find out that way. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, um, Dr. Malone, uh, we have another question that's come in. Uh, you said that that this um, condition will permeate a kid's life. Uh, is it possible a doctor will diagnose based on a single factor or viewing? That that certainly would not be optimal. Uh, there was a, a, a case, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times over the past year uh, about a, uh, a child who became uh, addicted to to Adderall, and and the uh, father of the child was. Uh, either interviewed or wrote the article, and it was a very sad story of a child who had episodic uh, visits with uh, with a, a variety of healthcare providers, who essentially gave him Adderall. And uh, we really think that this is something that uh, should require a a uh, a somewhat uh, rigorous uh, diagnosis. It should be a, a multi-dimensional diagnosis. You should see it in various uh, settings, and then it should be followed, uh, you know, the physician component of it. We, we should follow and make sure that the medication is uh, having the desired effect and that we're not having 
uh, unwanted side effects. So we, we need to follow a, a child's appetite, need to mm -hmm. follow their uh, academic performance, uh, how they're getting along at home, how they're getting along with their friends, and whether it's providing an improvement in their life. And Adderall's a stimulant, right? Adderall and methylphenidate or Ritalin are stimulant medications. Uh, and those are the ones that tend to work best. Yeah, those are, those are the ones that have the, the highest efficacy. And the non-stimulant medication is, is known as uh, atomoxetine or Stratera. Mm -hmm. Okay, and th just one follow-up on that. Are these uh, medications that t tend to stay in the, in the body or do they uh, work their way out of the body in a fairly short order? The non-stimulant medication tends to stay in the body uh, a little bit longer and the uh, stimulant medications tend to go in and out of the body. They are available also, the stimulant medications, in uh, sustained release forms so that we don't require multiple dosages during the day. Or in the case of methylphenidate, there's a patch available. Okay. Well, that's, con that's nice for the children and the caregivers of the children, I'm sure. Uh, we've got another comment from Esther. Thanks, Esther. Uh, it says, regarding the diagnosing in preschool issue, the most current American Academy of Pediatrics guideline published in November 2011 states that it may be more difficult to come to an appropriate diagnosis in that age group if the child is not in a preschool where the staff... Um, may not be qualified to provide accurate observations. Since the symptoms need to be exhibited in more than one environment, if the child is not yet in preschool, we are relying on only home observation. The guideline states that it can be helpful for parents to participate in a parenting group with trained therapists who can help parents determine whether the behaviors are within normal or truly concerning. Okay. Thanks, Esther. Uh, our phone numbers, uh, I want to give our phone numbers again. We have two, two pediatricians and an educator here. So if you have any questions, uh, we actually have four medical professionals uh, total. So if you have any questions, this is a great time to ask them. If you have questions about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have this great question from the booth. Uh, how much and what kind of training is available to teach parents how to interact with ADHD kids? And Kathleen, I would ask mm -hmm. you certainly to answer that sure. question. And also, how much training, I mean, how do you train your teachers mm -hmm. to to interact? Yeah, good question. Uh, we do ongoing training for our staff on attention mm -hmm. deficit and ways to work with kids who, who have those behaviors. We do a series of training with our paraeducators uh, throughout the year, and we provide various in-services and pre-service trainings to teachers. We also have a class that is for parents. It's not specifically for students um, who have ADHD, but it's a general parenting class that works with parents on just how to interact with your students and how to work with them. And certainly that would encompass uh, working with them around issues of impulsivity and, and just how you react to those kinds of situations. And we offer that um, in the fall and in the spring. It's, it's offered by uh, two of our veteran teachers who have a lot of training themselves. They've been specifically trained in how to present this class. So parents can look for that on the website. Um, we've had great reviews from it. Mm -hmm. Can you give us just a like one tip that people could take away from this? Uh, for for parents, uh -huh, for parents. Um, I th well, I think Esther gave some really mm -hmm. great great mm -hmm. ideas there. So, um, you want to tell kids what to do, not what not to do. So, uh, give small rewards and small increments. You want to teach things in small steps. Don't don't give them a, a goal that is um, too difficult or too long term. Um, give them supports that you can for organizing things, any kind, like a chart or a schedule. You know, we all use organizers, and um, we have calendars and things like that. Those work great for kids. Visual schedules mm -hmm. work sometimes as well. Um, okay. The old sticker chart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Another, another the old sticker is, chart. Yeah. <laughs> this is Dr. Lott. Yes. Uh -huh. Another thing is to involve the children Mm -hmm. in yeah. choosing what their rewards will be. Excellent idea, yes. um, That um, we would all um, work harder for what we want than something right. someone else thinks of, thinks we would want. And uh, there was a, a good example um, 
the, some of the people that developed the behavior therapies had a summer camp for kids with ADHD. And when they started out, they had a big grant and they had a lot of money. And so the, the kids were working for big things at the end of the week, like going to the zoo or going to a park. And um, that, and then there was a, the inevitable budget cut, and they um, had to consult with the kids. And the kids picked things being, you know, school-age boys, like um, super soaker um, wars with the counselors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And super soaker wars were just as effective as trips to the zoo for improving <laughs> behavior. So that um, involving the um, kids and the choice of rewards can be um, very powerful. Make things work yeah. a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. powerful. That's a good work. All right, we have four people who've accepted our invitation to call and talk to you. So Patricia, Patricia from Bloomington is first. Patricia. Yes, I just recently retired after 38 years of teaching, and I've only listened to part of your program, but i found that there are so many more males than females who have this problem, and I wondered uh, how that's, how do they account for that? And then as an aside, because there's a, I think it's much like a spectrum, um, the inattenda that Dr. Malone referenced is a much more profound, a much more significant problem. And I hope that at some point that's addressed because it's a serious, serious problem. Thank you. All right, Patricia, thank you. Uh, reaction, Dr. Malone first. Well, I think inattention is the silent uh, ADHD, and, and those kids really can... Uh, can go unnoticed for a very long period of time, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's it's very interesting to see the uh, effect of treating somebody who's who's inattentive. It it may make rather uh, dramatic uh, improvements in in uh, academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with with many uh, medical conditions. Uh, there's there's age and sex differences that we don't fully understand, and uh, but but certainly it's uh, statistically significant uh, increased incidence in in boys mm-hmm. versus girls. Although we really start to see the girls in fourth grade on up when we start to see more inattention. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. I want to ask a quick question from Christine, who is now off the line, but she did call in with a question about uh, will kids who start taking medications have to continue to take them all their lives? Uh, Dr. Locke? Um, that, that is a big question, and it is very individual. They, they don't, there's not a physiological medical um, need to keep taking, but uh, and people get less hyperactive over time but whether or not an adult but the but adults who were kids with ADHD continue to have problems with attention and sometimes with um, impulsivity and it depends a lot on what your what the individual's goals are as an adult whether or not um, they uh, will have the, the need, feel the need to have treatment. So there are a lot of people who are, um, as adults, are very impulsive and it interferes with their ability to hold a job or their ability to um, keep the foot off the accelerator of their automobile or a number of th- different things. And um, treatment is shown to be um, helpful for them. Okay. So those are people who would say, yeah, I need it. Mm-hmm. Um, to continue um, treatment as an adult. Okay. Uh, Thank you. We're going to go back to the phones. And Charity from Greencastle. Charity? Uh, Yes, I'm wondering if any of you are familiar with any of the computerized uh, assessments for especially the inattentive type of ADHD, like the Connors or the Tova. Uh, And I have found them to be quite useful. I'm a school psychologist, and we use Mm -hmm. the Tova. Thank Mm -hmm. you. All right. Kathleen? We use the Connors um, assessment on a regular basis. I think Dr. Malone referenced that earlier. Um, I'm not sure whether it's computerized or not. They, I know they distribute it to parents and teachers because we're trying to get, again, the, a, a broad observation of different settings, so not, not just looking at one place yeah. where the child might be mm-hmm. exhibiting I think, problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this is Dr. Locke. I think her, 
question is more about there are um, computerized um, continuous performance tasks. So oh. the ADHD was um, first um, got to be called ADHD because um, investigators had um, identified problems with um, continuous performance tasks, which are you get um, a number of stimuli presented to you from a computer, and you're supposed to press a button for some and not for others. And um, the, they've been around since the beginning of the idea of ADHD uh, that they've not been shown to be particularly um, more reliable than using the symptom questionnaires. So that, for example, the Academy of Pediatrics um, uh, does not um, recommend that kind of testing to make the diagnosis. Um, I think that um, that there um, they're really a research tool, um, and what they add once um, in an everyday clinical way is um, difficult to know. Okay, thank you. All right, Kathleen, do you have a follow? Okay. All right, so let's go. Uh, we have another call. It's Dennis from Bloomington. Dennis? Yes, well, I used to work in a clinic that handled uh, children and or parents dealing with um, attention deficit hyperactive disorder back in the early 1990s in Florida. And um, I was wondering, uh, before I left that job, uh, specific credence, uh, was given to some, I guess you would call them at this point, to environmental aspects of a child's life and or parents' life. I was just wondering, has it ever been studied that, um, or at least notated, that uh, many parents in the wake of economic and or marital issues, problems, coming up within the life of the family and or home life, um, that there may be a lack of attention that is, in this case, toward the child because the parents are too busy worrying about their, 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 their lives and their well-being and, and keeping their jobs, and they just don't have the time to do specific parenting, which is teaching your children how to behave at an early age, because that's what I hear from some psychologists on your program and as well in, in, in my lifetime, that parents come along and they don't have time for a child to go through uh, cognitive behavioral therapies and um, also come in for their own type of uh, parenting uh, classes, which they used to be called anyway in the 1990s with parenting. Um, I, I just wonder if, if the doctors feel that a lot of this later in life uh, coming up could be circumvented through proper behavioral and, and, and good, solid parenting by two parents, in, which today we only usually only have one. It's very normal to only have one parent now. And... Um, also, we have the, the uh, thing coming up, and it's also possible that the parents could only be of the same sex. So okay, I that's okay, not Dennis, I, bigoted, but that's my question. No, I, I'll hang up now and wait for your answer. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think Dennis's question is, you know, what do parents have to do with, with all this? So. I, th- I think uh, one of the things that we uh, need to uh, evaluate when we're assessing a child for ADHD is whether they are under stress. So a child who is under stress may have symptoms of ADHD, but not due to a, a uh, uh, imbalance of brain chemicals. They may just have other things on their mind and, mm-hmm. and be unable to focus. Uh, there's other things that we look at, such as uh, kids who have sleep disorders that mm-hmm. may uh, affect their ability to focus uh, in school, may affect their behavior. Uh, there may be other medical issues, hormonal imbalances, thyroid, things like that, that may may affect kids' behavior. And so 
we need to formulate what's called a differential diagnosis and make sure that we're we're correctly uh, diagnosing uh, the condition before we uh, treat it. Some kids may have environmental exposures, such as prenatal uh, exposure to uh, illegal uh, uh, medications or prenatal exposure to alcohol that may result in in uh, conditions which which uh, uh, basically are identical to ADHD. Okay, we're going to have to move on. We got two questions or two minutes to go. Okay, uh, this is clinical psychologist uh, Naomi Pickholtz writing. She says, "I think here in the U.S. we follow evidence-based practices as much as possible, which include non-medical interventions such as behavior therapy. Sometimes the issue of access to mental health care is the problem. A child may be refer- referred for behavioral therapy, but not have adequate insurance to cover the costs, or there might be a dearth of practitioners." Meanwhile, the child, and often the entire family, is feeling overwhelmed by the behaviors, and so there might be more of a pressure to medicate. Non-medical treatments often take longer to show results. Therefore, families need to be informed that the process can take time before concluding it isn't working and medications are necessary. And then from Esther, the pediatric nurse practitioner, she says one concern within the school system is providing the appropriate information and training to the student about his or her diagnosis. Many times the child is uncertain about taking the medication, which is where the nursing staff would provide education on the medication therapy side of the treatment process. Okay. I'm going to ask uh, Rose on the line. Do you have something very quick? We have less than a minute to go. Yeah, it's real quick. Okay. I'm curious about how this issue with certain medications, particularly Adderall, how is the issue of physical tolerance, which I understand is common with these amphetamine-type drugs, um, how is that dealt with in children, especially if they're going to do some long-term drug therapy? Do you have to increase the dosage or or switch medications, or how is that dealt with? Can we have a 15-second answer? Well, usually at the doses they use for ADHD, tolerance is not a uh, big issue. They Doses go up with time with growth um, just because the kids are bigger, but usually um, tolerance of the um, affected at pharmacological, not a recreational level, is not a big problem. Okay, we're got, we're out of time, so I have to thank. Uh, I want to thank our guests, mm-hmm. Kathleen Hugo, Dr. Richard Malone, Dr. Thomas Locke, Naomi Pickholtz, and Esther Briggs, and also for Gretchen Frazee, Emily Wright, Stan Jastrzemski, who sat in for the second half of our program, and Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.